Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I return to the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. We're here today with the Silver Professor of History Emerita at New York University, Karen Ordahl-Kupperman. We're here to discuss her new book published this year by a New York University Press, Pocahontas and the English Boys, Caught Between Cultures in Early Virginia. She also, this year, published an edited uh, version of Henry Spellman's Relation of Virginia. Professor Kupperman, before we start, can you touch a little bit upon both your selection of the cover for Pocahontas and the English Boys, as well as your edited Relation of Virginia? Well, the cover shows, it's one of the very few engravings from the period that actually shows Pocahontas and one of the boys. It's actually a picture of Pocahontas, the captive Pocahontas, being shown to her brothers. Uh, and these engravings were all made in England by people who who might have read something but had no direct knowledge of, of natives or native life or the scene. But it, it does show one of the boys, Thomas Savage and, and uh, Pocahontas. And I, uh, one of the, I, my work focuses on three boys, uh, one of whom, Henry Spellman, lived, actually published his description of his life with the Native people on the, uh, the Poetans and then uh, up on the Potomac. And that was first published in 1872. And that version is widely known and and is online. But mine is the first one since 1872 that was done from the original manuscript, which is in the Harlan Crow Library. And so I was able to correct some things that needed correcting and, and change some of the presentation according to how it was actually done in the original manuscript. So what prompted you to study youthful go-betweens in Jamestown and early Virginia? And what is your source base? Well, one of the things that got me interested in doing this is uh, back around 2007, the 400th anniversary of Jamestown, I had the opportunity to speak to many groups of high school teachers. And it really seemed to me that the the old Jamestown narrative, you know, the swaggering soldiers uh, and the native people who were resisting or attacking, that we really needed a new narrative. And these high school kids should know about these children or these teenagers who were in Jamestown and who were possibly the most important people there. So this... The source base is actually pretty thin. We, we have the official letters sent back to the Virginia company. Uh, and, and, you know, those are all 
trying to keep the Virginia company happy with what was going on in the colony. So they're always giving their best spin on everything. And the boys tend not to be mentioned unless they are doing something important or are seen as threatening in some way. And we have a few colonists who wrote about their experiences and published them, but not so much. So those plus Spellman's own memoir, and then the other thing that has recently added greatly to our knowledge is archaeology which in the past few decades uh, has been very intensive in this region. And uh, we know a lot more now. We can read the documents differently than we did on the basis of what we know from the archaeology. And just to give one example, we now know from tree ring studies done by archaeologists that, that Jamestown was in year two of the worst seven years of drought in the in the previous 770 years when the colony was founded. So they, they could not have come at a worse time uh, for the Native people. Can you provide a brief response to your own introductory question? And that question is, quoting you, why were there so many English boys on the ships bound for the New World? And why do colonial leaders just dump them when native people they hardly with native people they hardly knew? In your response, pl- please try to address uh, the go-betweens as translators. Well, the first part of the answer is that it was common for English boys and girls to leave home at around thirteen or fourteen. This was England's educational system. Most most young people went into servitude and. They served as servants for probably a decade or more. And at the end of that time, they were supposed to know a trade, maybe know how to read and write or calculate. Uh, and, and so they were ready for adult life. And it's, it's striking that when people ceased to be children, they entered into a period called nonage. So... My feeling is that that in some ways they weren't full members of society while they were in their period of non-age. So there were lots of kids available. That's my first point. Uh, And I think uh, they were expected to do whatever needed to be done. The first ship to Jamestown, the, the passenger list, just says four boys. It doesn't even tell us their names or nothing about where they came from or who they were. And um, every ship carried more boys. And so they were expected to do whatever colonial leaders thought was uh, good for them to do. So some of them were left with Native people to learn the language. And the idea was that they were malleable. Uh, one source said that boys are doughy and unbaked, so they can be shaped into different forms. Uh, and um, also, as we know, children are much a- more able to learn languages and adapt to new situations. And of course, they were also less threatening to Native communities. I'm almost tempted to go so far as to say they were expendable because they weren't yet full members of society. And so some of them 
you know, it wasn't just Jamestown, all over colonial areas, all people left uh, young teenagers. And sometimes they came back and sometimes they didn't. So, but the, the goal was that they would be able to act as go-betweens in the future, that they could translate, that they would build good relationships with their native hosts so that they could, um, you know, pave the way for the English in various relationships. So who was Thomas Savage? And why did Captain Christopher Newport participate in an exchange for him and a native youth known as Nemantic? And what role did Savage play in the uh, 1608 uh, and 09 encounters with uh, Poetan and his peoples vis-a-vis Pocahontas? Well, Thomas Savage came in the first supply fleet. So the colony was founded in the summer of 1607, and he arrived with the fleet in January 1608. And he'd only been in the colony for a short time before he was given to, uh, he was presented as a gift to Poetan. Um, and and Poetan did the same thing in, in as Captain Newport in giving Namentech to Newport. And he later said, actually, that he gave uh, Namentech so that he could learn as much as he could about the English and about their country and so that he would know better how to deal with them. Uh, so we don't know who Thomas Savage was. He's on the passenger list. There's a Richard Savage on the same ship. Richard may have been his brother or father, or uh, we just have no idea. The, the sources are unbelievably uh thin on a lot of these things. Um, and so uh, he became, he, he was taken in by Poetin. He was treated as a, a member of his family. And so he uh, came to perform very important roles. But we don't know very much about what he was doing in 1689 because uh, the sources are so thin. And we certainly don't know what was happening in Wawokomoko, which was Poetin's capital, where Thomas was living. Um, but we do know that uh, relations between Poetin and his client people and the English were souring, partly because the English had no capacity to feed themselves and in the drought conditions that we now understand, <clears throat> excuse me, we know that um, uh, their constant demands for food were creating a great deal of uh, hardship for that native people. So Thomas was in a situation that was getting progressively more difficult, I think. Likewise. Who was Henry Spellman, and what were the circumstances that prompted him and Thomas Savage to visit Oropax um, and around Powhatan's capital? How did competition, quoting you, how did competition and tension between the two English boys lead to conflict and tragedy? Well, Henry Spellman is the one boy that we know something about. His uncle was, uh, he was from a fairly prominent family, 
his uncle was a member of parliament and uh, found, was a founding member of the Society of Antiquaries, which was a, a high prestige historical group. And, and so there are fam- a few family records that we can look at. Thomas was um, 14 when he came to Virginia in 1609. He, the first sentence of his memoir is, being in displeasure of my friends and desirous to see other countries. So it's conceivable that he may have done something, committed some small crime or something that, that made his friends, his family, in, in those days, friends could mean your family, um, want to get him out of the country. And the Virginia company was organizing this huge fleet in 1609. And they, and Sir Henry may have intervened somehow to get Henry onto one of those ships. So he came in, in circumstances that we understand as opposed to the other boys. Uh, And he had only been there a while. He, Captain John Smith had left him up near the falls of the James, where modern Richmond is, with uh, a, a young leader named Parahunt. But uh, Spellman had left him and, and returned to Jamestown, which was a big no-no, really. Uh, so he was in Jamestown. Uh, Thomas Savage arrived with a group of Oaten's men and said he did not want to return to Oropax alone because life there was not so comfortable anymore. The Oropax was Oaten's second capital. His capital of his initial capital, where Wokomoko, was on the York River. It was a great place. It was easily reachable by ship. Uh, but Oropax was inland. It was not on a, a big river. It was much harder for the English to get to. And that was the, the point. He wanted, he, he wanted to have less, them to have less, less access to him and his people and their food supplies. So when Thomas came back and said that he really didn't want to go alone, they told Henry that he should go with them. And Henry said he did that because conditions were so terrible in the fort that he thought it would be better to be living in Poetin's capital, even though it was a less comfortable situation for them. So on the conflict and tragedy, Poetin sent both of the boys separately on different occasions with false messages. And Henry's was especially bad. He was sent with a message to Jamestown saying that if they if they sent some men and some ships or some boats, uh, he would give them food. And in fact, it was a setup and the people were attacked and almost all of them were killed. So that was certainly uncomfortable. Uh, and and also the boys, I think, felt now like they had to, you know, really compete for Poetin's favor. So Yapazus, the Potomac chief from the Potomac River, came and visited 
and he invited Thomas and Henry to accompany him north to the Potomac. And they set out, and then Thomas reconsidered and went back and told Poetin that, that what was happening. And so Poetin sent men to pursue them, and uh, one man, one a, a German carpenter who uh, was supposed to be building a house for Poetin, was killed. Henry somehow managed to escape. Captain John Smith later said that he Pocahontas had actually intervened to save his life. But in any case, uh, that whole set of relationships was basically over. Uh, Poetin sent Thomas back to Jamestown. Uh, Pocahontas was married to a man named Coquam. And, and that was sort of basically the end of this early period of relationships. So what does Spellman's relation of Virginia, which you uh, recently edited, and his contributions to William Strachey's publications reveal about Native and European lifeways during the 17th century? Well, I think Spellman's relation is extremely important because he actually lived both with Poetin and then for a lengthier time with Yapazus up on the Potomac. And so he saw daily life. He actually, um, you know, see his... his um, Relation talks about what food they eat, how do they plant it, how when someone decides to marry, how is that set up, and how do one of his categories was how do they name their children? So he actually had this was the first certainly English report that had a real insider's view of what was going on, and I think there again his youth was very important because he probably was allowed to see many things that an, even an older English person wouldn't have been allowed to see. So, uh, and, and the William Strachey account, he talks about his, uh, his understanding of the religion and the origin story, the origins of the world story of the uh, Potomacs and so there's a tremendous uh, amount of understanding that comes from Spellman's relation that was not available and was not available later from other sources, you know, because that, that kind of intimacy was very rare for uh, an English person. Let's uh, shift gears here and uh, discuss Pocahontas. So in 1612, how and why did C Captain Samuel Argall kidnap Pocahontas? And why did she subsequently convert to Christianity, marry John Rolfe, accept the name of Rebecca, and then teach Rolfe to cultivate, quoting you, sweet-scented tobacco? Well, the short answer is we don't know. <laughs> so, because uh, <laughs> no one, it, we, there's no statement by her in her own voice. So we only have what other people said about her. So uh, we know why Captain Argall decided to kidnap her. I mean, he said he was up there on the Potomac, and then suddenly someone told him that Pocahontas was there visiting. And so he, he said he would um, take possession of her by any means you know, possible. 
And his first idea was that he was going that that they could then exchange her for um, Englishmen that Poetin was holding. And it was only when John Rolfe came forward with his uh, interest in marrying her, and Ale- Reverend Alexander Whitaker was was working on converting her to Christianity. That they that the leadership said this would be a much more important breakthrough for us than just exchanging her. So, I have spec I have some speculations. I think Alexander Whitaker, the minister who converted her, was a Puritan, uh, and and Puritanism offers much more direct relationship with God than the more formal religion of, of uh, the Church of England did. And so it may be that she was able to find in his what he taught her something that was, you know, maybe comforting in her new situation and, and may have, uh, you know, made her feel better about what was happening to her. Uh, the, the accounts that were published in England all used exactly the same language, and they said she publicly renounced her country idolatry and was baptized as a Christian. So they're stressing that it was completely voluntary on her part. Of course, whether that's true or not, we have no idea. Uh, John Rolfe, I'm convinced, having read his long letter that he sent to the governor, was re- very much in love with her, and and that may she may have returned that love. There, again, we have no nothing that tells us anything about that. Uh, she may also have, you know, knowing that she was a captive and that that was her fate, she may have decided to do the best she could with the situation, which would include becoming a Christian and marrying and, and participating in the life of the colony. Can you explain the circumstances of the 1616 uh, Lady Rolf engraving, the Golston Salons, and Pocahontas's attendance at the 1617 staging of the Mass, the Vision of Delight? as well as, if possible, the Virginia Company's transfer of Pocahontas from London to Brentford. Well, the Virginia Company was was making the most that they could of, of Pocahontas' conversion and marriage, and she was the, now, she was uh, not only a Christian convert, but she was also the mother of a Christian child. So, that was why they decided to bring her back, and they're, you know, they're the Virginia Company is not doing so well financially, and so what they're hoping for in this case, and I think this very much relates to the engraving of Pocahontas, is they want to attract a wide number of investors, not just big merchants and you know members of the elite, but they were hoping to make this a pious cause that people from all over the country would, would invest in helping to bring Christianity to Pocahontas' people. So the engraving, you know, is perfect. It's, it's a, a, you can produce hundreds of them and send them all over. And she is 
portrayed in that engraving as the ultimate English gentlewoman. Uh, and, and having her received by the Bishop of London and then being at the court for the court mask on Twelfth Night, these were all important milestones because it signified a kind of imprimatur, you know, of the crown and, and uh, the Bishop of London on their endeavors, I think. So she was a sensation. People wanted to see her. Uh, and she was the first person. Lots of Native people had been brought to London by this time. But they were always displayed in their Native dress. You know, they were curiosities like that. But Pocahontas, I think the important one of the important things is that she is always portrayed as a, an English Christian gentleman. Uh, and so she's always wearing the English dress and that kind of thing. Uh, on the Goldston Salon that you're talking about, this was a, a, a group of scholars who met over several evenings, not with Pocahontas, but with her brother-in-law, who was the chief priest of the Poetans. His name was Utamatamakan. And over these several nights, he described his religion to them. He described religious practices. He demonstrated some of his religious practices. Uh, he told them it was useless to try to, to convert him because he was an adult, but they might be able to convert the children. Uh, and this was important, I think, because these scholars, you know, we're talking, this is the early period of the scientific revolution. And, and they were interested in gathering in all the knowledge they could from all over the world. But the fact that God had allowed them to know about the existence of the Americas, they thought was very significant. And so by learning from Atamatamakan about his religion, they thought they might be able to figure out what old world people the Indians were descended from uh, because they utterly rejected the idea of a second creation. So it had to be some ancient dispersal in the past. And, and they wanted to learn as much as possible in order to um, gather in all this knowledge that had recently been made available to European scholars. So on her removal from London to Brentford, again, we don't know. We can only guess. Um, it seems possible that, uh, I mean, London was extremely polluted and dirty. And so they may have moved them to Brentford for health reasons. Uh, Brentford is near where the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew are today. Uh, they may also have done it for economic reasons. It may have been cheaper to maintain them out in Brentford than it was in London. But they did move them, move her and her whole entourage out to Brentford. How did the ultimate aim of a conversion mission and return trip to Virginia spur Pocahontas' untimely 1617 demise? And how did her attendant seemingly become a successor candidate for the mission? <laughs> The answer, again, is we don't know. Uh, nobody talks about, nobody says that she was sick 
you know, before this home voyage, return voyage started, and and we just have no idea what caused her sudden death. Uh, and I have speculated in my book that it may have been the pressure. They were instructed, they were given a, a large sum of money, a hundred pounds, which was a lot of money in those days, and told that they were the Rolfs, John and Pocahontas, or Rebecca, were to go back and begin the conversion of her people to Christianity. And I assume that was an extremely stressful assignment for her. And um, so, you know, she was only 20 years old. I, I think uh, it's conceivable to me anyway that she died of stress. One, one commentator had said before they started this trip that, that uh, it was sore against her will to be returning to Virginia. So it's, it's extremely, you know, it's, it's ripe for speculation, but it's very hard to know anything, uh, you know, in particular about it. And her companion, she had several uh, attendants, and they stayed in England for a while. They were, uh, at least one of them was very sick with what might today be considered tuberculosis. But, and, and the Virginia company was very strained paying for their upkeep. So they decided to send the two women to Bermuda, where they hoped one of the that the that the two women could marry and then one of them could come back to Virginia as a married woman and start the conversion process. And one died on the on the ship en route and the other one was married in uh Bermuda, but we don't know anything about what happened to her after that. So who was Robert Poole, and why did he testify against Henry Spellman in a 1619 inquest into charges of treason, charges that actually would ultimately revert Spellman back to the status of nonage? Well, Robert Poole uh, actually had been in the colony for quite a while at this point, and he, we know we don't know where he came from, but he came with his father and brother, uh, and he was some years earlier assigned to. Opikankano, who ultimately became, by 1619, had succeeded Poetin as the paramount chief. Uh, and it was he who brought treason charges against uh, Henry Spellman. And he recounted this story where Henry Spellman came to visit Opikankano when Robert Poole was there, and he told him that a much greater man was coming to be governor of Virginia, and that that uh, this new governor, this greater governor, would rescind all the agreements that the present governor had made. So the argument was that Henry had put the colony in very great danger because he had he had suggested disrespecting the present governor. And uh, one of the points about this is that this it was not an, a, an inquest as such. It was 
the first meeting of the Virginia Assembly. 1619 is a very important turning point in Virginia history, which you know we are observing right now, 400 years ago. And it was it was the uh, they completely revolutionized the way the colony was set up so that colonists could have land of their own. They started to import women to be wives for the planters, and they set up this assembly uh, in so that they could have a degree of self-government and control over taxation. So this is the first meeting of the first representative assembly in English overseas territory. So on the last day of their of their deliberations, they transformed themselves into a court to hear the charges that Robert was bringing against Henry. And you know, in even today, the part the English Parliament is called the High Court of Parliament, so it can hear cases, I guess, in very special circumstances. So um, this was. Uh, this was a, a very important moment, the meeting of the assembly, and then these charges that Spellman uh, had been undermining the colonial leadership were brought by Robert Poole. And, and you know, Spellman did not really deny them. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a very fraught moment. So, and, and also at that point, the leaders of the colony began to express fears about these go-betweens, Thomas and Henry and Robert, because they had become more independent. They could control their comings and goings. They were now men, not, not teenagers. And so they, they talked about Henry as having you know, turned heathen. That is, he had become so sympathetic to the other side that he had ceased to be a true Englishman. And then a few months later, they began to talk about Robert in the same way. They, these were no longer people that they could control in the way that they had expected to be able to do. On that note, in 1622, how did go-betweens, particularly uh, Poole and Thomas Savage, as well as uh, those native youth, uh, become embroiled in a decade-long conflict between Virginia and native peoples? And how did Spellman become a casualty of war? Well, in 1622 is the other major turning point in early Virginia history because Opikankano, who now commanded all the Poetans, decided that he was going to create a master strike that would simply wipe the colonists off the face of Virginia. It was, no one had anticipated how the colony would begin to grow at the end of the 16-teens. And, and suddenly, what had looked like a small and easily controllable group of people were, were expanding up and down the rivers, the plantations were growing, and, and so Opikankano tried to put a stop to it all. And, and uh, the plan was to attack every plantation on the morning of Friday, March 22nd, which was Good Friday, and just be done with the English. And Thomas Savage actually had had warning. Savage had moved to the eastern shore, so he was away from the 
intense pressure at Jamestown. But the chief with whom he had allied himself had warned him about poet or Opikekano's plan and the leaders in Jamestown, because they now doubted these boys, just decided to ignore it. So Opikankano did not succeed in wiping out the colonies, but a lot of colonists were killed on that day. And there was then a, a whole year of of disease that followed in, in which John Rolfe, for example, died. Uh, so the the colonists decided that the colonial leaders, I should say, decided that they had to meet fire with even greater fire. So they carried on 10 years of warfare trying to to make it so that the, the native people would never, ever try something like that again. So there was a... Um, uh, both Robert Poole and Thomas Savage were up on the Potomac. Thomas had been restored to military rank by this time because I think his expertise was so needed. And, and it's not even clear who the various groups they were confronting were. The, the records are very unclear. So uh, in one of these episodes of fighting, Thomas, or, you know, sorry, Henry was killed, and and Robert made it out and and lived to be, continue to be an interpreter, but Henry was 28 when he was killed up on the Potomac, where he had originally found his refuge. So, what were the post-war fates of of Robert Poole, and you also mentioned Thomas Savage. I'm also particularly interested in uh, the fate of uh, Thomas Rolfe, uh, Pocahontas's son. Well, Robert, uh, as I said, Thomas had moved to the Eastern Shore, which I have to say was a really smart move. Uh, and he had formed a very close relationship with a leader there named Esme Shechans, who had given him land and given him a, a, a place, a stable position there on the Eastern shore. They, the record said he was the first English person to plant permanently on the Eastern shore. So he had, he, he was in a very good position. He married uh, one of the women who came over as part of this new initiative and they had a son. So he, he had his, he was still could be troubled by people from Jamestown and their demands, but for the most part, he had a very good life, you know, as a planter. And the Eastern Shore was, in some ways, a better place to be because tobacco planting was so, uh, you know, sort of uh, hard to predict. I mean, they say that you put the seed in the ground and and you grew your crop and it was it could be a couple of years before you got the answer back from the merchants who sold the tobacco in London as to what your tobacco was worth. Whereas the Eastern Shore was involved in the provisions trade, so they were trading up and down the coast with the, the colonies that had been founded by then. And their 
their return was immediate. Everybody wanted food, so there was always demand for their product. And so it was a much, much better place to be, I think, than for someone, at least for someone like Thomas. Poole uh, remained single the rest of his life. He continued as an interpreter. He always felt that he was underappreciated, that his contribution was not properly recompensed. He appears in the records often, either bringing information or um, demanding payment for his services and that kind of thing. So Thomas Rolfe had been left in England when Pocahontas died. So he was a baby uh, and they decided that he was too weak and sickly to make the ocean crossing in 1617. So he was left with uh, John Rolfe's brother. He grew up in the same house in the same village that John Rolfe grew up in. And he didn't come back to Virginia until 1635. Uh, John Rolfe had married a third time when, when he returned after Pocahontas' death. He had married uh, the daughter of a merchant uh, named James, uh, her name was Jane Pierce, and um, William Pierce took a, a very great interest in his step-grandson. So it was he who paid his way over. John was dead by this time. Uh, and and arranged, you know, for his arrival and helped set him up. So Thomas inherited quite a bit of land from his father and and uh, in honor of his mother. Uh, and he married Jane Jane Poitras. His stepmother was Jane Pierce, and. Uh, in 1641, so he'd been in the colony for six years, he, he filed a formal request to go and meet with his mother's family. And that's all we have. We had, don't know whether the meeting took place. We don't know if it did take place, what was said, or what kind of uh, exchanges they had. And... Um, but he clearly, by this time, had made his choice. He was he was a uh, an officer in the colonial militia and commanded a fort, and he was definitely an Englishman. So, towards the end of the book, why did quoting you the term "renegade," which originally applied specifically to Christians who turned to Islam, begin to be used in Virginia to describe colonists who absconded to join the Powhatans? Similarly. How did Atlantic Enterprises exacerbate Jamestown fears that go-between youth, such as Spellman, Poole, and Savage, could and would turn Turk? Well, the term one of the terms that's used in the early years in Jamestown is "runagate," which I think means runaway. And I think "renegade" is another form of runagate. Uh, but it was originally used for these people who were captured in the Mediterranean, and then converted to Islam. Uh, but it was a common sort of uh, preoccupation in Europe of 
these people who might change their identities or whose inner identity might be different from the one they presented outwardly. So um, I think one of the things that they had not anticipated is that if you're a, a 13 or 14 year old boy, you've been sent off, we don't know by whom, to cross the Atlantic to do whatever job people decided you should do, and you're left with the Indians, and then you suddenly find that the Native people are treating you very well and welcoming you into their homes. And Poetin spoke of Thomas, for example, as his son. And um, so it's not surprising to me anyway that they would have formed close ties and, and sympathetic ties with the Native people because they understood them. They understood the pressures they were under and um, they, you know, it, it seems to me it's inconceivable that they would have remained with a rigid English identity throughout all this. And, and then, as I said earlier, they, the, leaders, the English leaders began to be frightened that this was happening. And, for, and they disregarded Thomas's warning about the 1622 attack, for example. So... I think the idea was there for a long time. And, and um, you know, as I said, after the, the 1619 uh, treason trial for Henry, they a few months later, they referred to Robert as having turned heathen. So I think that what they didn't, they knew that there was a psychological process going on and they didn't understand it and they found it frightening. And that terminology already existed and so they started employing it. And as I said in the book, uh, uh, Hamlet talks in when he's debating with himself what to do, he talks about what would happen if his fortunes turned Turk. So betrayal is, that's just a way of referring to betrayal, I think, in common speech in England. So on the other question, though, um, how did Atlantic Enterprises exacerbate all this? One of the things that I really came to understand in writing this book is that uh, People who ventured into the Atlantic, and not just these kids, had to constantly reinvent themselves or they weren't going to make it. You had to have a patron. You had to have a place. And that, that was never guaranteed. You had to kind of say, well, I can do this. Or I you know, appeal to somebody. I have this to offer to you. So they're, they're constantly having to figure out ways to make it and and as much or as little as the English leaders understood this, then they would um, be more and more mistrustful of these boys. I have a final question for you, Professor Kupperman. 
Um, okay. What are you doing next? Are you going to continue to uh, enjoy Emerita Bliss, or do you have another project or a vacation? Well, I do have. A, yes, I have another project, which is it's actually an old project which I put uh, on one side in order to do this, but I'm really eager to return to it, and that is. Uh, on music as a way of communicating. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting in all of these early accounts, not just to America, but to Africa and even to Asia, is that you land on a, an unknown shore. You have no idea what the language is. So when the people first start approaching you, you start singing or playing instruments. And the native people do the same thing everywhere. And so um, it is the preferred form of, of communication in these early encounter situations. And uh, it also feeds into um, one of the things that all these scientists were looking for was a universal language. And so they thought music might be the way to that. If, if they felt like all the world's problems could be solved if everybody could understand each other. And so they thought of music as a way of maybe edging toward that if they could have a, a language that could be sung rather than spoken, uh, because it could represent more, because you have many different tones and, and uh, that kind of thing. So, and one, if you don't mind a little aside, I mean, one of the things that I found really fascinating when I started working on this is that there were three books written by English people in this same period about voyages to the moon. The first one, he talks about his spaceship is powered by wild swans that carry him up to the moon. <laughs> and all three of these writers say that the, the moon people one called them lunatics, uh, don't speak at all. They just sing and play instruments and they understand each other perfectly. So it's an intriguing, you can see, uh, it's an intriguing project for me. Well, Professor Coverman, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for inviting me and for these really interesting and good questions. So the book is Pocahontas and the English Boys Caught Between Cultures in Early Virginia by um, Emerita NYU professor uh, Karen Kupperman uh, out this year by uh, New York University Press. She also edited uh, Spellman's Relation of Virginia, which we talked about on the show. Um, so on behalf of uh, Professor Kupperman, as well as the New Books Network, the Native American Studies Channel, this is Ryan Tripp. Tune in next time. <laughs>